Well, welcome. We're studying the life and teachings of Paul. We're in his life still. Uh, he's an elderly man at this point. We've made it through a lot of his life. And uh, uh, as we looked last week at his letter to Philemon, uh, he has hit a point in his life where he calls himself an old man. He's in his 50s somewhere. And that's while he was in Rome. We're going to pick up from there. Um, okay, so when I was graduating from law school, actually I just graduated, I was coming to Houston, Texas, I had a chance to go back down, to, or go back up to Lubbock to watch the Red Raiders play, that fantastic experience that, ooh, we have some snakes out there. <laughs> just remember the Garden of Eden and which side you're on if you're a snake. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> Red Raiders, and I bumped into my uh, preacher that had been uh, preaching there at the church. His name was Ken Dye, and uh, he asked me, he said, so how do you like it? How's life as a lawyer? And I said, oh, it's really cool, and I started telling him some of the things about it that I really enjoyed. And he said, he listened, and he asked some polite questions and was interested, and as a good friend and a good fellow. In fact, still reads these lessons. Uh, I send him a copy of these on Saturdays as well, and he gives me input. Uh, his input on this was, I really don't remember that happening, but that's okay. Um, uh, anyway, I, I remember him vividly telling me, or I vividly remember him telling me, Lanier, while you're doing all this highfalutin law stuff, don't forget who you are. And don't forget what you're about. Because your goal in life is not to be a lawyer. Your goal in life is to serve the Lord. He's just got you doing that on the way. And then he looked at me and I said, um, I said I'm, I'm with you. And he said, let me, let me put it in simple terms. He said, don't start thinking you're something on a stick. Like I'm a popsicle, I guess, or something. I didn't really get the picture, but... I said, I won't. I said, I don't really know what that means. He, means. he said, it means don't get a big head. And I said, got it. So with that advice, I launched into my legal career. I go back to that because that was good fatherly advice. That's good advice for all of us. Doesn't matter where you are in the world, doesn't matter what you're doing, there's good advice from an older person to say, don't forget who you are. And don't forget why you're here. You've got purpose beyond your job. You've got purpose beyond your station in life. And don't lose track of that. Let that be what defines you. Don't let it be what you own. Don't let it be what you don't own. Don't let it be what you do. Don't let it be what you don't do. Let it be your calling from God that defines you. And I like that as we get into this because we're looking at what happened to Paul and we're going to focus on his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy this morning. And in doing that, we've now left the confines of Paul in Rome. We had Paul in prison in Rome for the last several classes and that's gone now. We've left at least Acts the, the, the recorded history. I'd like to be able to tell you exactly what happened to Paul while he was in Rome, how he got out of his imprisonment, how his appeal to Caesar turned out. But I don't have a biblical record of it per se. 
Having said that, we do have some information and we do have some insight and we have some common sense that can lead us to some logical conclusions. So let's look at it. Acts tells us, the very last two verses of Acts, that Paul preached in Rome for two years. Here's the way Luke wrote it. Luke said he lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense. When you were a prisoner, you still were responsible for, for taking care of yourself. You weren't fed. You had to have someone bring you food or you had to have some means of getting food. Uh, uh, prisoners uh, really cuts down on the prison population, by the way, when you have that because a lot of them waste away. Um, it's also one of the reasons Jesus said, when I was in prison, you visited me not. That was serious stuff. If you have someone who's serving time, they, they need someone to help take care of them. Paul lived there two years at his own expense. He was in, 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 a, in a, a house that he rented uh, under house arrest. Uh, he welcomed all who came to him. He was proclaiming to them the kingdom of God. He was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did it with all boldness and without any hindrance. And with that, the book of Acts ends. If we were studying the book of Acts, we would spend the next 10 or 15 minutes discussing why the book of Acts ends right there. And I would give you a number of different views. I would end it, or maybe start it, with my own view, which is... That's when Luke was writing it. And so it ends there. Luke planned on writing more. That's apparent from reading the start of Acts where he says, in essence, this is the second installment. And he says it in such a way that, that it anticipates a third installment. But we don't have another installment. This is it. I suspect that's when Luke was writing and that's where he had gotten and he never got any further for some reasons we don't know. But at any rate, that's the end of the biblical history we've got. So what do we do with that? Paul preached in Rome for two years. What happened to him after that? History outside of the Bible records that Paul was released. History, church history says he not only was released from his imprisonment time in Rome, but he went out and he preached more. Ultimately being arrested, brought back to Rome where he uh, uh, is martyred. And we'll deal with that, God willing, in two weeks. Uh, Paul's release does make most sense. After all, he was there appealing a crime of which he had not yet been convicted. He was, in fact, appealing a crime where the Roman triers of the case had already said, you know, this guy really ought to be released. What's more, if we put two and two together... Nero is the Caesar, the emperor at the time. You remember Nero who fiddled while Rome burned? That hasn't happened yet. Uh, he hasn't started the persecution of the Christians as a result yet. Nero is the emperor, the Caesar at this time. His chief legal counsel is a fellow named Seneca. Seneca has a brother named Gallio who had been the ruler over in Greece. Gallio, the Roman ruler over in Greece, had seen Paul and had Paul brought before him while Paul was in Greece. Gallio, Seneca's brother, had the Jews levy the same kinds of complaints against Paul that the Jews were levying against Paul in this imprisonment coming out of Jerusalem. And when Gallio ruled on it, Gallio said, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, 
I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And Gallio lets Paul go. Now, Gallio's brother is the chief legal advisor for Caesar. For Caesar Nero at this time that Paul's making his appeal. I have no doubt By the way, isn't God's hand providently wonderful? I have no doubt that Paul was able to say, ultimately, okay, I've been accused of these things. The Jewish accusers haven't come forward. Acts told us that as well. They didn't bother to make the trip from Jerusalem. Whether they ultimately did or not, we're uncertain. But at least Paul's able to say, your brother heard these same types of complaints, and here was his ruling. And Seneca could obviously check on that with his brother. There was... Uh, uh, postal systems for the government and uh, it makes sense that Paul would have been released. Now, Paul's writings also indicate that he anticipated being released. Remember he wrote to Philemon as we discussed last week and said get one of your guest rooms ready. I think I'm going to beat this rap. He said the same thing to the Philippian church when he wrote them from his imprisonment. He says, it'd be better for me to go ahead and just die because then I get to be with the Lord. But I think it's better for you that I stay and convinced of this. I know I'm going to be released. Not only that, but we have these three letters, first and second, Timothy and Titus, the, the three letters to individuals, first, second, Timothy and Titus that Paul wrote. And the only way they make sense in terms of the history that Paul references within them is if Paul wrote them after his Roman imprisonment. Now, a lot of scholars, not a lot, a number of scholars think Paul didn't really write those because they don't want to say Paul was released or they want to have some excuse for saying that the Bible's not authentic in what it claims to be. But realistically, uh, it makes a lot of sense and conservative scholars uh, give forth very good, solid reasons for knowing that Paul wrote these letters. So we have them. Now, I ought to digress for just a minute here since I'm already so far behind. And it's useful for us to understand how these letters are placed in the Bible. No, God did not uh, um, send a table of contents with the Bible so that the people would know in what order to put the books. The books were originally a collection of scrolls and a collection of letters. The church didn't even have books until about this time. This is the time when books came into vogue. Before this, there weren't books. There were scrolls. Luke's writing in scrolls. The reason his history is in two volumes, Luke and Acts, is because 35 foots, the maximum scroll length you could reasonably buy, and it takes 35 feet to write Luke and another 35 feet to write Acts. It's another reason it ends there. He ran out of room. (laughs) You know, like, flip it over. (laughs) Um, That's the way writings were. Books, originally called codexes, just started coming into vogue where they would take the paper and they would sew it together down the sides. Or if not paper, they'd take vellum, which is animal skins or parchment or something like that, and they'd sew it down the sides and put it together in a book. In fact, it's the church that is credited with bringing books into fashion and vogue more so than any other group in history. 
The reason being the church wanted to be able to reference their Bibles easily. And it's a whole lot easier to look up a verse in a book than it is to take a 35-foot scroll and say, I know it's here somewhere. <laughs> See? So um, as the church put the books together, the church took all of the writings of Paul and put them together. Now, how did they order them? Scholars don't know. They say two basic theories. One thing they do know is they put first the letters to the churches and then the letters to the individuals. And it looks like they're, by and large, longest to shortest. So the letters to the individual, Paul had four letters to individuals. First and second, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. We did Philemon earlier because we were doing, we're doing them in time order. But it's the shortest, so it's put in there last. Now we've got first and second Timothy, and then we've got Titus. And those are the only three letters we haven't dealt with yet. So this morning, we're dealing with first Timothy. Paul's writings indicate his release. Paul writes this letter to Timothy. He doesn't follow up immediately with 2 Timothy. Next week, we're going to do Titus. Then we'll do 2 Timothy because that seems to be the chronological order in which he wrote him. Now, what do we know about Timothy? First of all, we know that he was willing to make personal sacrifices to have an effective ministry. His father was not Jewish. He had not been circumcised as a child. Luke told us in Acts that when he decided, when Timothy decided to go with Paul... Even though he was a young adult at that point in time, uh, he chose circumcision so that he'd have an effective ministry, not a, 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 a very painful procedure uh, at that point in time. He's Paul's companion and co-writer. A number of letters, Paul says, Paul and Timothy. You know, Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Philemon, Paul and Timothy. Timothy was probably the one doing some of the writing of these letters of Paul. Uh, Paul is able to say to Philemon, you know, Timothy's proven or to the Philippian church, you know, Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So he's someone who's not only Paul's co-writer, he's Paul's companion. Paul sends him as an emissary to various churches. At a time Paul can't go to Macedonia, he'd send Timothy. Timothy goes forward as Paul's right hand, as his agent, as his emissary. When Paul writes this letter to 1 Timothy, Timothy's probably working with the church in Ephesus. And that seems to be the indication within 1 Timothy itself as we read it. So one more thing we need to put into context before we look at the letter, and that is Ephesus. I want to remind you, when Paul last spent time with the Ephesian church, it was with the elders of the church. And they came to meet Paul as Paul was journeying to, to Jerusalem. And Paul put a word of prophecy on them. Paul said to the Ephesian church, elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Paul said, I know. That after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from the eldership, from the overseers, from the pastors, from the bishops, whatever words you want to use, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. From your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. It happened. 
It clearly happened. It was going on while Timothy was at the church trying to fix things, trying to set them aright. Paul had a great love for the Ephesian church. He's got Timothy there and he writes this letter. And so Paul starts the letter out expressing his love and appreciation for Timothy. And then Paul says, you know, here's the deal. Timothy and Paul starts right in on the false teachers. You got false teachers there. You got people who have problems. You got people who are misleading the folks. While the target, the purpose of the Christian life needs to be love from a pure heart. That's the target. If I could paint a target for you, for your life, it's you need to love with a pure heart. Love with a pure heart. He says, let's, let's zoom in more. You need to live from a clear conscience. You need to live, love with pure heart. Live with a clear conscience. Zoom in even further. You need to embrace the sincere faith of the church. Now, that's the target. And that's what you ought to be teaching. And that's what your teachers ought to be teaching. And that's what your pastors ought to be teaching. And that's what your elders ought to be teaching. That is what you need to be about. It's not difficult. It's not highbrow. It's very focused and it's very targeted. The problem is you've got these airhead people who don't have a clue of what they're talking about who are turning their backs on what they need to be speaking on and instead think they have some really cool, cutting-edge teaching that's new and, and great. I watched some fella on TV one time, a popular televangelist, who's there teaching something new that the church has not been teaching. Something new that's... that's, that's that, that will radically change your life. He has discovered the key to understanding the power of God, he said, in ways that had not been discovered since the scriptures were originally written. Now that sends up my antennas. I'm sorry, it just really does. This guy's got the key that's going to unlock scriptures like they haven't been unlocked in 2,000 years. And then he launches into this theology that he's constructed off of his building of these verses in this patchwork quilt, taking one word here and figuring out under the substantive theory of mathematics that if that word exists there and it exists in this verse, then he can take this verse and plug it into that verse. And pretty soon he's constructed this entire thing that makes about as much sense as that blacked out screen I just put up there by accident. And we don't know exactly what these guys were, but boy, they thought they had some new deep insight into the law that had been missing since Moses gave it. And they're discussing these endless genealogies of, of all of this ethereal stuff out there in ways that's just leading to dissension. It's leading to frustration. People are distracted. People are falling apart. Oh, I'm sure they had their bandwagon of people jumping on it, but there were a bunch of people who were seeing it as a train wreck. And in the midst of all of this, Paul says, get that fixed. Stop it. Get them to stop it. You know, and, and understand, Paul says, I'm not trashing the law. I'm not saying, oh, the law is no good. The law is certainly good. I can tell you right now, Timothy, you and I both know two ways God uses the law. One way God uses it is to keep the lawless under control. 
We got these rules so that people don't just run harem scarum around the world acting like trash in destructive and harmful ways. But there's a second way, and that's to point to Jesus. Now, those are two Christian understandings of how God has used the law. And Paul says, it's been real good to me. Because understand, I am the biggest sinner out there. I am the vilest of sinners. If the FBI, instead of a ten most wanted list of criminals, had the ten most wanted, uh, the ten most wanted sinners. Look at that. Whoops. There he is. From Saul of Tarsus to Osama bin Laden, the chilling stories behind the FBI's historic list of notorious sinners. I mean, Paul says, I'm at the top of the list. You're not going to find anybody worse than me. I'm the guy who's blasphemed. I'm the guy who's persecuted. I'm the guy who insolently opposed God. I'm the chief of sinners. Yet, God gave me the gift of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to forgive me of my sins. So the biggest sinner in the world, he's forgiven me. I know this. This is what the law shows. The law shows me this. And the neat thing about it is in doing it, God has made a picture of me for others to see. So you get to see what God can do to the vilest of sinners. He can flip me into his holy saint that goes out there and preaches the gospel. That's what God can do. God can take garbage and turn it into priceless. And Paul says, that's what he's done with me. And he's done it in a way where people can see it. So you know, and we know, that God can do the same with us. God can take something that's garbage and turn it into something that's priceless. So you can look at your life. You can look at not only the garbage you've done, but look at the garbage done to you. Maybe you had no responsibility for, but you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. God can take all of that and flip it in such a way that people will say, wow, there is a God. And he cares about his children. Paul says, and I'm stunned. To this moment, Paul says, as an old man, all I can do is say unto the king of ages, unto the immortal, the invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's moved to this great voice of praise. And Paul says, you see, Timothy, this is worth fighting over. It's worth fighting over people focusing on what God wants as opposed to being distracted and taken off into sin. And so I want you to do it. He says, there are people who've made a shipwreck of their faith. Two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says, I've just handed them over to Satan. Disfellowshipped them. Not because I want them to go to hell, because I don't want them to have a ruined life in eternity. It's my hope that, that as they live without the fellowship and the support of the church, they'll learn how desperately they need it. So I want you to pray. I want you to pray for everybody. I want you to pray for those who are believers. I want you to pray for those that aren't believers. I want you to lift up holy hands in prayer. 
I want you to do it with supplication. That means you ask God. Lord, would you please save so and so? Well, it didn't happen today. Ask again tomorrow. I don't know how many of you keep a prayer list. But I want to tell you, if you do email, you've got one. Because you keep it on your email. People email me, Mark, would you pray for this and this? Or Lewis sends out a class email. I try to keep it on there until I feel like I've prayed for it enough. So every day as I try and go through my emails to clean them up, and I try to delete them down from 750 to zero, I see that one. I can't delete that yet. I still need to pray about it, and I pray about it. I don't know what works for you, but you need to be in prayer. And you need to not only be asking God, but you need to be interceding. Lord, so-and-so's in a mess in their life. I pray on their behalf. Let the blood of Jesus cover them. Lord, would you please rescue them from this horrible situation? Pray with thanksgiving. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. You go to bed at night. I want to give you something to do. Especially if you have trouble going to sleep. I don't know how many of you have trouble going to sleep. Throw away the Ambien. Throw away the Sonesta. Let me give you a trick. Lay down. Close your eyes and start with your first thought that morning and start thanking God for each moment of your day, each person you came into contact with, each difficulty, which is also an opportunity. And as you do this, things will come to your mind to pray for and you pray for those things. You will not get to the point where you're going to sleep. You will fall asleep in that prayer. And if you don't, then praise God. Get up and take some Ambien. <laughs> See, God wants everyone saved. He wants them all saved. God doesn't want anybody to perish. That's not his wish. There's, there's one world with lots of people, billions of people in it. There's only one God. And there's only one mediator between God and this world, and that's Jesus Christ. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He provided the only bridge there is. And that bridge is for any who believe. God didn't provide a selective bridge. God provided the only bridge. If God had not provided Jesus, there is no mediator. There is no bridge between the world and God. Of course, God wants every man to be saved. That's been his whole modus operandi to save people. Now, within the framework of this, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, so behave like it. Men, when you pray, lift up your holy hands. He says it. Women, difficult passage. He says, now woman, she's going to be saved through childbearing. Now, we'll talk about this because we're going to talk about Paul and women's issues at some point, God willing. But we need to take a moment with this passage and understand it for what it says. 
Scholars have given three different views that are, are rise to the top of what Jesus is, uh, of what Paul's talking about here. One is that women are saved because through childbearing, Jesus was born through the incarnation. And I do believe that's what Paul's talking about here in that sense. There's also another sense that I, I don't have any problem with, and that is the sense of as a result of the fall, when mankind was cursed, God says, men, you're cursed. You're going to go out and you're going to work in the fields. And by the sweat of your brow, through the thorns and the thistles, you'll put food on the table. And women, you're going to have, as a result of the curse, childbirth that's going to be painful and is going to hurt. Okay? And so Paul could just be referencing the fact that from the female's perspective, that's part of the curse. And you're not saved in the sense that you earn your salvation by birthing babies. That absurdly is not what Paul means. Okay? But you are, are saved in the sense that, like he wrote to the Philippians, you work out your salvation because God's at work in you. You know, this is just how you work through the curse. The curse is, is for women as well as for men. And that's possible. A uh, third reading of this is that, no, when it says you'll be saved through childbearing, he just means Paul's saying that God's going to save the mother's life while she's bearing children. Well, I'm sorry, I know Christian women who've lost their lives while they were bearing children. Uh, get rid of that one. That's not what he's talking about. Paul says, now, let's talk about the church itself, Timothy. You've got to get it in line. You've got overseers. The word there is an overseer, an, epi, an episcopos, scope, see, epi, over, an overseer. It's not the word presbuteros, which Paul will use later, from which we get presbytery, elder. It's, it's not, but, but churches generally assign to this overseer either the title of an elder or the title of a pastor. So Paul says, you've got overseers of God's people in the church. These overseers need to be above reproach. They need to have one wife. Scripture's unclear whether that means married once or whether that means married once at a time, if you understand. You know, as my friend Kevin Parker told me, I don't understand why anybody would be a polygamist. And I said, really? He says, yeah, can you imagine having more than one woman tell you to take out the garbage? Uh, uh, one wife. Uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, honorable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, gentle, not violent or quarrelsome, not a lover of money, a good manager of a household. If you can't manage your own household, how are you going to manage the household of God? And not newly converted because they might start thinking there's something on a stick. Well thought of. Not only, Paul says, do we have the overseers, but we also have the servants, the deacons, the diaconate, the ones who are serving. And those servants need to be dignified and honest speaking. They need to be tested men of faith. They need to be married to dignified women of faith. They need to have one wife and they need to be a good manager of their household, too, because if they can't manage their own household, why do we expect them to manage the household of God? He says, see, here's what's happening here. The church is the house of God. It's not a social club. This is not our version of Rotary. Okay? This is the house of God and we're family. And this is the beauty of it. This is what's happened. This is the inverted triangle. You see, God became manifested in the flesh, Jesus. 
And as he became manifested in the flesh, Jesus, he was vindicated as God by the power of the Spirit. There was an empty tomb. And the power of God vindicated that he, Jesus, was God. He was not left to decay. He was seen by the angels in here. And this is something that's now been proclaimed among the nations. And not only has it been proclaimed among the nations, but it's been believed throughout the world. And it consummates with Jesus being taken up in glory where he sits today. And that's what we have. And that's what life's about. And that's what motivates us. So get rid of these people that are teaching this false sense of holiness. Like if you're miserable enough, you must be holy. Come to church, let us make you miserable so God will love you. That's just wrong. God didn't, that, that, that's just wrong. That's not holy. There's, Holy misery might be something Robin says in a Batman episode, but it's not something that's a goal for us. Holy misery, Batman. Okay? I mean, the basics are we're to live our lives as as exemplifying love and faith and purity. That's what we need to be about, not trying to make ourselves miserable or the person sitting next to us. That's what it's about. It's a positive thing. See, we treat the church like a family. Which makes Paul say, by the way, Timothy, I know you've been having stomach trouble. And you just are a sickly boy. So take a little wine for your stomach. It'll help it. The, um... (laughs) What you need to do... (laughs) Dale Hearn, what you need to do, (laughs) what's that about deacons being sober minded? Um, (laughs) Deacon Dale Hearn gave me that slide. Um, He says, Timothy, what you need to do is teach people the truth of being content. The truth of being content is not how much you have. The truth of being content is not all the busyness you've got. It's not the money you possess. In fact, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The truth of being content is being in God's will. Don't chase money. Don't spend your time and energy in life chasing money. Spend your time and energy in life chasing something worthwhile. Righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love, steadfastness. I've got a friend, and she has these traits growing. It's one of my daughters. I shouldn't say a friend. I have four daughters, so I can say this without anybody knowing which one it is. I see all of these traits growing in her. But I saw a crisis in her life this summer. A little crisis to me. But in her world, it was a big crisis. And it rocked her boat. Because while she had these traits growing as a godly woman, the steadfastness hadn't caught up to the other traits yet. And I said to her, sweetie, I said, when this crisis isn't rocking your boat, you've got the love. 
you've got the righteousness and you've got the godliness and you've got these things. But when this crisis is rocking your boat, you seem to have thrown all those things out the window. That's the trait of steadfastness. That says even when everything's not going perfect, you still practice the graces that you have. It's nice to be patient. It's nice to be kind and it's nice to be good and it's nice to be loving. And those are important things. But we don't want to be that way simply when life is good. We want to be a people who are that way when the world is falling apart. We want to be people who say time out. I know the foundations are being destroyed. But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne and his eyes look down and they examine what's going on. They see it and they know. And I'm in his care. And so let the wind blow. Because I stand on a rock that will not be shaken. That's where that's something worth chasing. Gentleness is worth chasing. And so Paul breaks into praise at this point in his letter and he says so hold on to the good faith in jesus timothy hold on to the good faith in jesus who's the blessed and sovereign lord who's the king of kings who's the lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen ultimately in his purity and goodness Or can see as humans. To him be honor. And eternal dominion. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. Points for home. One. Timothy. Paul says. The aim. The focus. The target. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a clear faith. That's the aim of our focus. Make it the aim of your focus. Make it the aim of your focus. I am going to be focused this week. I'm going to be clearly focused this week on love that issues from a pure heart. I'm going to be clearly focused this week on a good conscience and a clear faith. Trusting in the Lord Jesus. And that's going to be my focus. Second point. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. I'm going to pray this week. I'm going to pray on behalf of people saved. I'm going to pray on behalf of unsaved people. Before I get harsh with anybody. Before I get judgmental with anybody. Before I get... On to anybody, I'm going to pray for them. Before I I, um, fall apart, I'm going to pray of the situation. I'm going to leave the emails up and I'm going to pray about things. If people ask me to pray about something, I'm going to send myself an email. Pray about this so I don't forget. I'm going to lie down at night as I go to sleep. I'm going to start in the morning. Lord, thank you that I woke up this morning. Thank you that my family woke up this morning. Thank you that I got to see my wife and my daughters. Thank you that I had a roof over my head. Thank you that I had a 
great chance to eat breakfast. Thank you. There's such a thing as honey nut Cheerios. <laughs> Final point. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now I want to, this is a double barrel shotgun point for home. Point one, if you're a sinner, that's you. And we're all sinners. So Christ came into the world to save me. And he came into the world to save you. So there are two kinds of people who can hear this. One kind are people who are not saved. If you're not saved, have I got good news for you. You come up here afterwards and me or any number of people will be glad to share it with you. But if you are saved, Paul says this as a saved man writing to a saved young man. I say young man. At this point, Timothy, Timothy's in his 30s. But he's writing this to Timothy. And do you know what Paul does when he does it? This is where Paul breaks into his praise. Because the effect of this on the saved is not, oh, yes, that's true. I'm glad I'm saved. The effect of this on the saved should be, praise God. Just an expression of incredible gratitude and thankfulness. And worship. It's a reason to come to church. It's a reason to be different. And it's a reason to never forget the incredible God who paid the incredible price to bridge the gap and bring us home. Would you pray with me? Lord, our hearts are moved to praise as we come before you through Jesus Christ, the mediator, the bridge, our Savior, the Word incarnate, everlasting, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone dwells in incredible, unapproachable light. Thank you for taking each one of us individually, calling us by name, into your kingdom. And I pray that you will continue to grow and nurture us as we live in your presence, we want to become more holy, more steadfast, more gentle, more prayerful. We want to become like you in the way we act and the things we do. So would you give us that graciousness, please, and continue to grow us in that way. We pray through our Lord Jesus. Amen.